and to improve every day and then every week and then every month. And that is a much more engaging and fruitful career. That doesn't mean that they're devoid of people. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, in certain cases, it increases your reliance on an even more scarce skill set. Growing skills gap, increasing cyber threats, supply chain disruption. Do these sound familiar? It's a tough industry to be in, and we're here to help. I'm your host, Caroline. And I'm your host, Doug. And you're listening to AWS Industrial Insights, the podcast for manufacturing and industrial business leaders who aren't afraid to think big. We interview executives from well-known companies to share the disruptive ideas on topics like leadership, technology, and innovation. So let's get started. All right, well, welcome back to part two of speaking with Deloitte here. You know, last Last part, we, we kind of really dove into the smart factory, understanding what does that mean, the Wichita sample that you have for customers to visit, and understanding what are the challenges to building that and how customers are facing that now. Um, if you were listening to the last episode, you probably heard the word talent or people come up quite often. So today we're really going to focus, dive in a little bit deeper to the future of work. So to get started, Jason... You know, I want to ask you about the factory of the future. Uh, things have changed a lot, especially during this pandemic. Um, can you talk a little bit about what is required now today in the future or in the factory and working at the factory that's different from five to 10 years ago? Yeah, sure. And maybe what I'll do is start at the macro level and, and drill down. So we have seen a lot of shifts, some of which we spoke about in the first episode, but one that we didn't speak about that's really of critical importance to manufacturers is this notion of improving resilience. And for those of you that are out there that haven't been able to get something shipped to your house or you've been to the grocery store and there's, uh, there's not enough paper towels, this is a function of resilience. And so we've seen this shift from organizations that were looking at their manufacturing operations purely from a cost basis to now actually adding variables around their ability to supply in the face of challenges. And that's this notion of resilience. And so with that, you've probably read numerous articles, organizations are starting to nearshore and onshore a lot more of their production that historically had really been um, shipped off to low, low cost manufacturing countries. So as a result of that, we're starting to see more focus on how can we be more efficient in higher cost environments, hence, the smart factory and smart manufacturing comes into the dialogue. At the same time, given all the technical advances that Stephen was alluding to, we're starting to see another focus in a shift in focus associated with the individual organizations that we work with, which is it used to be about how you optimize a single manufacturing site. And, and that's how plant managers and operators were incentivized. But now what organizations are starting to learn is that they're actually able to make better choices if they look at their entire network, their entire global manufacturing network. And that'll drive you to make different choices, different decisions as you're manufacturing what is a growing and more complex product base that the market is demanding. And so having visibility into those networks, being able to see when things shift or demand centroids move, or there's changes in, in supply, you're now able to look and optimize that network rather than a single site. 
And that makes a huge difference in terms of how you operate. And I think similarly, just connecting it back to the first episode, as we see more and more demand for agility, higher product counts, more complexity, um, requests to bring products to market faster, an organization's ability to think about their manufacturing footprint as a network becomes more and more critical. And then within each one of those facilities, how you think about agility across your assets and your lines has a very similar impact. And so moving from a lot of fixed manufacturing capacity to variable capacity is really critical and is completely different today than it was even five years ago. Jason, to follow up on that, so lots of change that need to happen out from that standpoint, but we've been talking about for years, the things like the silver tsunami, people retiring, people leaving this industry and not enough people coming into it. So how, you know, think about what you were just talking about with all these changes and how is that gonna impact the next people that we need to bring in? Yeah, so if you think about the history of manufacturing, Doug, what you come to conclude pretty quickly is going back 20 or 30 years ago, up till today, manufacturing jobs were not the most attractive ones. It was typically filled with with resources that were considered low skill, um, a lot of repetitive tasks. Employees were not empowered to help improve and you know make marked change on how their operations run. They were simply given a procedure and asked to execute it. And as a result of that, combined with the fact that over that time we were moving so much manufacturing overseas, um, the, the skill the skills really just sort of fell off the map. And what we're seeing, and what I think is very exciting about Smart Factory, is that as we shift more of that manufacturing back to, uh, back to the U.S. or nearshore, what you're starting to see is a shift in terms of the kinds of talent, the kinds of people that manufacturers are looking to bring into their organizations. And it is a different world. And we talk about the idea of um, moving from manual tasks to automated tasks. Well, that's great. However, you're always going to have, for most organizations, a component of, of manual task within your processes. Very few organizations can truly run lights out. And so hiring and bringing in talent that allows you to uh, showcase sort of the, the human-machine interface, how humans work with automation, and the kinds of capabilities that you need to enable that are just fundamentally different. They're resources that are higher skill that are more, have more technical aptitude. You want to empower those resources. In other words, as Stephen mentioned earlier, bring them the right information at the right time to help them make better decisions that allow them to improve and to improve every day and then every week and then every month. And that is a much more engaging and fruitful career for a lot of people than being told what to do and coming in and just executing your manual tasks for eight hours. And so you're starting to see the shift in terms of the kind of resources that are coming into the operations, but then also the kinds of things they do and the amount of autonomy that they have to help make better decisions for the organizations. And what we are seeing is when you do that correctly, you're actually now seeing more of net adds to talent within manufacturing rather than more of a scampering away from manufacturing, which historically has been what we've seen, especially in the U.S. 
So in episode one, we talked about the smart factory using smart factory concepts and everything. And here we're talking about talent and capabilities from there. How's the smart factory going to help this area? Yes. Yeah, so we intentionally, when we built the facility, we intentionally chose to not do a lights out uh, facility, Doug. And as part of that, what we did is a combination of what we call fully automated, semi-automated and manual steps in order to be able to sort of highlight that human machine interface I alluded to earlier, right? How do you work in an environment where you are gonna have operators being critical to the output, throughput, and pace that you can run that line? And uh, we've taken advantage of that at at WSU using um, students from the university that are participating on our line and working with us every day to do a lot of the things I just spoke about, which is, how do we improve our line? How do we think differently? Um, how, do, how do you take that operator experience and make it more fruitful and impactful such that it becomes a place where, where you know, students and, and uh, you know, seasoned professionals alike really wanna, they wanna participate in it. It's something that is just fundamentally new and different. And like I said, it's, it's an empowering role and we're seeing that within our factory, both with our undergraduate and and graduate students working with us. Definitely, and and Jason, one of the points you brought up about making sure that people have the data they need to make decisions reminds me a lot of what Steven said in part one, um, where technology can kind of unlock a lot of those opportunities. And I can imagine that it would be really hard to find a balance between the amount of automation and the amount of human interface that's necessary to achieve those goals. So Stephen, can you talk a little bit about like, how do you reach that balance and um, what are maybe some things to avoid? Yeah, it's, it, it's a phenomenal question. And, and it's one that we often get asked, um, you know, as, as, as some of our guests are kind of concluding their, their experience there with us uh, uh, at the smart factory uh, in Wichita. And, and, and the question usually uh, will come about in a way where they'll say, hey, does, 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 does this mean that a lot of organizations are, are moving towards, you know, like lights out facilities or, you know, um, uh, fully automated facilities? And, and, and we're able to kind of really show, showcase, as Jason mentioned, you know, a lot of the different types of capabilities um, that are necessary across that entire spectrum. And for most organizations, what's going to be the right answer for them is is usually somewhere in the in in the middle, and 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 that's being driven by a couple of of really distinct things. Um, on one hand, you've got this concept of resiliency, which which Jason brought up, and and that's really tied to you know getting the right data to people that are helping make better decisions. Now that can be done with. Uh, perhaps some augmentation, some tools, right? So one might call that a form of automation of our data, but in this particular case, um, you know, the the resiliency could be driven by a you know a machine learning model that is powering a recommendation engine that is alerting that particular operator to a condition and and suggesting, hey, actually, there's three choices you can make, and um, you know you let me know which one of these choices you'd like to put into place and and the system will enact that change. That's an example that occurs at the operator level. There may be another example that occurs 
uh, as a supply chain planner is looking at demand and um, production outputs from manufacturing plants and perhaps some some um, unforeseen weather event. And they're being given recommendations by a machine learning model that, that presents that person with, hey, here's three options. Choose the one that you think best best suits this 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 need and so we like to call that like person in the loop control and for any uh any automation engineers out there uh listening today uh, they'll 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 recognize the importance of um of of kind of what what has historically been referred to as man in the loop control where you've got you've got an automated process but it's it's in service to um, an, an individual. <laughs> that's that's exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. And exactly, we're going to increasingly see those types of augmentation type solutions that allow people to better make sense of what is a massively proliferating set of set of data that exists in their manufacturing environment. And and when you start combining that with the broader supply chain, when you start combining that with the broader enterprise, it really starts to exceed an individual or even a team's ability to, to, to rapidly distill all that information. And that's where you need some of these advanced technologies. There's another really important aspect, though, to, to automation, and that is the skill sets that are required in this, in this automation. Because even in facilities that are truly lights out, that doesn't mean that they're devoid of people. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, in certain cases, it increases your reliance on an even more scarce skill set, um, and that's around a lot of your your engineering staff, around around a lot of your your automation specialists, uh, skilled trades, uh, in a way that um, that isn't always the right uh, the right answer. So uh, that brings us back to this important uh, you know notion of of balance really being somewhere in the middle for 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 most uh, for most organizations. Hey, Stephen, you mentioned one thing, and of course, it's pretty dear to our hearts at AWS, and you guys as a consulting company as well, is one, the technology, advanced technology. What are two areas that technology has unlocked that wasn't available five years ago? Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I would say that those, um, those really fall in in two, um, two, two, two areas that would go something like our ability to execute solutions at scale and then also our, our ability to um, rapid, or I would say um, implement the solutions um, in, a, in, a, in a time scale that is more appropriate for, um, for creating that impact in the organization. So let me give you an example of what, uh, what that might be. Um, a lot of the actual math, a lot of the actual algorithms that are in use um, in, uh, in, in many, um, many kind of machine learning or recommendation engines, th those aren't necessarily net new um, algorithms. In fact, uh, many of them were developed in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, what we now have is the ability to to run those types of algorithms in not only a more expeditious way, but in a uh, more accessible way. So scale is really enabled by you know the the raw horsepower. So that's that's an underlying piece of technology that's really important. But then also pretty rapid advancements in the technology that sits on top of on top of that that core, and 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 that is pieces of technology that don't necessarily require a mathematician 
or a data scientist, but now through a variety of kind of low code and no code solutions, allow people to access that 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 raw horsepower in a way that uh, that that is a little bit more um, suited towards you know individuals that you're going to find uh, in uh, in the manufacturing environment. So really, scale and accessibility, Doug, is the is the two core areas that that have helped unlock this this power. Awesome, very good. Thanks for that. And as we wrap up today's conversation, um, Jason, you know, I want to give you an opportunity to have a last word as well here, talking about kind of people who are listening to this podcast. What should they take away from this episode about the future of work, and what do you think that they should do differently? Yeah, Caroline, I think that. There's just there's no doubt based on our research that organizations are going to go on this journey to digitize their operations. And my advice would be there are so many different ways to approach doing that. Don't find yourself getting paralyzed. And we do see clients, given there are so many avenues, there's so much tech, there's so much opportunity in this space that they chase the shiny object and they find themselves spinning their wheels. We, we have a saying here at Deloitte, this notion of think big, start small, and scale fast. And um, what we mean by that is start your journey by setting really lofty ambitions. Even if those ambitions may take 10 or 15 years to get there, it's still important to have a true north such that every decision you make as an organization really pivots around your ability to over time to, to get to that, to that point. And then the notion of starting small is it's all about ROI, right? You can't afford to go spend five, six, seven years proving out solutions. You need to be able to do it much faster using agile techniques, using sprints. So pick some spots where you can make a difference, where you can show an impact, where you can show return on investment and place some bets there. And then use those those victories and those learnings as an opportunity to really springboard yourself into scaling. And once you've proven something within part of your network, um, being able to then take that and expand it out to your broader network gives you obviously a multiplier effect in terms of return. Um, and doing that quickly is important once you've proven something out. So it really is that sort of mantra of, of think big, start small, scale fast. We would encourage organizations to think about that because the last thing you want to do is find yourself um, doing a lot of what we call random acts of digital around the organization that aren't really connected, you can't drive towards a common vision, you find those projects over time fizzle out and they become poor investments. And so don't get bogged down in that. Um, really look for opportunities to, to get going, get started, and, and, and show some victories that will move the needle. Thank you for tuning in to AWS Industrial Insights. If you want to learn more about today's episode, head over to the blog for a list of featured resources on this topic. You can also find today's blog in the episode description and also on our website at aws.amazon.com industrial podcast.